This is Politics Media 101. I'm Jeff Browning. Stephen Wertheim is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a historian of U.S. foreign policy. He's an expert on the international order itself, how we came to be here, what U.S. grant strategy is in this moment, and on why citizens should care about it. We talked to him about what's happening in Ukraine right now and how policymakers are responding. As a reminder, like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped with live audience questions. For information on how to join us, as well as past episodes, please visit our website, pm101.live. Please also take a second to subscribe on whichever podcast streaming service you're using right now so you don't miss our next episode this Friday featuring Fred Wellman, former executive director of The Lincoln Project. This interview was conducted by our co-founders, Justin Higgins and John Gunnison. Without any further ado, let's roll the tape. How do you view the collective West's response so far regarding sanctions and arming Ukraine? Have we gone too far, not far enough, just right? Where are you at? Well, I've been heartened to see an outpouring of support for the Ukrainian people in the West and the way in which uh, in European capitals and on the ground in Europe, people have awoken to the genuine threat that Russia poses to states like uh, Ukraine on its borders, I think has been overdue. At the same time, I do worry about the sanctions. Not many people prior to the invasion, which was anticipated by quite a few people, envisioned sanctions as severe as this. So I worry about the kind of gamble that I think we've made in the heat of the moment, where we're almost kind of daring Putin to get more repressive, more totalitarian in the hopes that somehow by crashing the Russian economy and hobbling people across Russia and Central Asia with other ripple effects, something better will emerge. This is just not a strategy that many people were thinking about beforehand because it doesn't seem straightforward how this will lead to a positive outcome. Being where we are, I think it's really important that we use the sanctions in a strategic way. And I think the best realistic resolution to the conflict would involve an agreement if the government of Zelensky is willing to make it, in which neither side gets all that it wants, but we can at least stop this violence. And as part of that agreement, some relief of the most extreme sanctions, like the sanctions on the Russian central bank, may be necessary. And so I think that is what we should be thinking about as an ultimate destination. But I do worry that Western countries are not in sync as to whether they even desire that outcome and would be willing to put some sanctions relief on the table in order to achieve a better outcome. Stephen, I kind of want to get into your idea about what that kind of settlement where each side gets a little bit, but not all of what they want, would really look like. So what elements would the West in this scenario have to concede to Moscow to satisfy them enough to end the hostilities? What do you think the shape of this kind of settlement could really be? 
Well, interestingly enough, um, we've seen both Russian officials and the Ukrainian president Zelensky himself suggesting some basic parameters and sounding somewhat similar, although of course vague, in uh, what they'd be willing to do. I think a central part of it would be to take NATO expansion, that issue when it comes to Ukraine, off the table. It's something the West is capable of doing, but hasn't done, and I don't think will do. But if the Ukrainian government decides that it's worthwhile to stop the bloodshed and end the bid for NATO membership, then I think it would become politically possible. So I think that's one essential element. And then I think Russia has made clear that it would like some recognition of its annexation of Crimea and likely a recognition by Ukraine of de facto Russian control of the two easternmost so-called autonomous republics in the Donbass that Russia claims are independent states. What exactly would be essential for both sides with respect to the Donbass, I think, is a little unclear. And then sanctions relief might be on the table as well. So, you know, as I describe this, I think it sounds rather similar to the outlines of the kind of diplomatic deal that was discussed prior to the invasion, but obviously didn't happen. So the NATO enlargement element, I tend to think that this is a little bit overstated as a genuine explanation for Russia's behavior. And of course, that the prospect of Ukraine's ascension to NATO is quite exaggerated. We're in a scenario where for the last eight years, Ukraine have been in a hot war with Russia in the Donetsk and Luhansk Oblast. It's impossible to imagine how in a situation like this, NATO expansion, including Ukraine, would ever really have been on the table. And surely the Ukrainians knew that, the Russians knew that, the Europeans and Americans knew that. Isn't NATO expansion to include Ukraine, isn't that already off the table? And was that ever really enough to be motivating the situation that we're in right now? Yeah, so I don't think the NATO issue is the only issue driving things. And of course, it's always difficult to read exactly which of the several justifications for their actions that the Russians put forward is most important. But I think we should be careful not to assume that the way Ukraine's relationship to NATO membership looks to us in Washington is the way it looks to the Kremlin. So I think what the Kremlin may see is that NATO declared in 2008 that Ukraine, as well as Georgia, will become members. It intervened in 2014, citing concerns that in the midst of a pro-Western revolution, that then NATO membership, which Ukraine itself had taken off the table in previous years, might then become a possibility, as well as EU membership which is also important. We shouldn't uh, neglect that. And then since then, the prospect of joining NATO has become much more popular for very understandable reasons in Ukraine in the face of uh, Russia's continued aggression after 2014. And Western countries continue to at least give nominal support to the idea that Ukraine might become a member in the United States itself. I think the Secretary of State Blinken 
over the summer expressed his support to Congress for Ukraine's membership in NATO. Now, I think we understand that Ukraine is far, far way away from NATO membership. But, you know, I could see the view from Moscow being that, yes, it might not be an imminent possibility, but it's one that they feel strongly needs to be foreclosed in the future. And they don't have any assurances that that will happen. So I think NATO is absolutely a factor in what has brought us to this point. And it will also have to be a factor in any resolution to the conflict that stops the bloodshed of Ukrainians, as opposed to something like a continued terrible warfare that I'm afraid to say probably ends up in a Russian victory or just incredible damage to the people of Ukraine. So I'm glad that you mentioned the EU aspect, and that's something that I want to get to. But first, just to kind of close out this discussion about NATO, I don't really understand what some kind of commitment or promise from the United States to not admit Ukraine into NATO would really mean, why that would really be so valuable. Because, you know, you mentioned the view from Moscow and how Moscow thinks about American promises and NATO expansion. But from their point of view, aren't they looking at kind of unreliability of U.S. commitments. Of course, we've seen this repeated pattern where the United States makes a commitment and or enters into an agreement and then undermines it or withdraws from it, like uh, we saw with the JCPOA, which which we saw with the Paris Climate Agreement, which we've seen with things like UNCLOS and uh, the ITO. It's a very repetitive pattern. And we know that this incredible whiplash can happen from one administration to the next. So Tony Blinken and Joe Biden saying, we're not going to admit Ukraine into NATO. Why is that something that really has so much value that it could be a central piece of resolving this conflict? I mean, surely Moscow understand that that kind of commitment is not any more valuable than the basic understanding that when there's a war happening in eastern Ukraine, France, Germany, Italy aren't going to ever accept Ukraine as a member. I mean, isn't that basic reality apparent enough for them that a commitment that really doesn't have very much value, it doesn't really add anything to a negotiation? It's a great point. There's definitely a commitment problem here. Remember, in the lead up to this invasion, the Kremlin demanded a formal treaty permanently forswearing uh, the possibility of NATO membership for Ukraine. And, you know, that wasn't going to happen. But we have, in fact, not tried the option of the president of the United States saying NATO membership for Ukraine is off the table. I think President Biden, in his press conference in January, did indicate that Ukraine wouldn't be a member anytime soon, that it faced a lot of obstacles, and perhaps that he was willing to talk about this issue with Vladimir Putin. And we don't exactly know what he said to Vladimir Putin, so we don't know if any kind of offer was tried. But we have not had the United States say, this is not something we are interested in. It's off the table. But perhaps as important or more important than that, I think, would be the government of Ukraine deciding that it doesn't want to pursue NATO expansion and it favors a course of neutrality, which is something that President Zelensky floated recently. That would also potentially change the equation. But am I saying that I have some kind of magic formula where some technical fix is going to solve our problems for sure? Absolutely not. We just have to try. Perhaps we should try it. But of course, 
them saying that in the foreseeable future, we can't see Ukraine joining. I think that's probably about as good of a commitment as the U.S. really can make with, you know, the pattern of whiplash between administrations in mind. But let's kind of talk about that EU element, because I think this is just as important, much less discussed. If we look at the events of 2013 and 2014 and what precipitated the war in Ukraine, it was Euromaidan. It wasn't NATO Maidan. It was the aspiration of Ukrainians to join the EU association agreement, which they had agreed and then had been ripped up by Yanukovych, who instead wanted to join the Eurasian Economic Union. And I think that it's important to recognize that these are mutually exclusive options because a country can't be part of a customs union with two different territories. You can only have one common external tariff. So either you're in an EU customs union, you're trying to integrate with the EU, even without necessarily being a member, or you're in the Eurasian Economic Union. It's one or the other. And this is what precipitated Putin's annexation of Crimea and the war in the Donbass, and now this. So clearly, this is a huge factor behind what Putin is doing. I think it reveals that perhaps there's more of an imperial or colonial or economic agenda than one that's about NATO. But if we're talking about the shape of some kind of settlement that would satisfy both parties, I mean, in this scenario, what is going to happen with Ukraine's trade policy? Because you can't be part of these two territories. You can't be in an EU customs union with an association agreement and in the Eurasian Economic Union. So if this kind of settlement is going to satisfy Moscow, will Ukraine be able to control its own trade policy? And what will that look like? Do we have an idea for what that will be? Because obviously it has to be part of a settlement. This is what precipitated the entire conflict. Wonderful question. I do think that Ukraine's relationship to the EU has not been nearly as central in the expression of Russian concerns and demands over the years as has Ukraine's relationship to NATO. And so this is not one of the things that has been emphasized in the outlines of what a settlement would look like and would like to see it, as we've seen in recent days. I think when we think about the factors at work here, now I'm a historian, I think all of, all of our attempts right now to make sense of what is causal, what is most important, what is secondary, what is tertiary, these are very provisional. I want to see the archives in, in 20 years if we can ever get a hold of them. We have to be careful to, to not sort of separate variables too finely, because the EU itself also involves a defense commitment that is very similar to the commitment, at least on paper, of NATO's Article 5. And in the reaction to this invasion, we've seen European capitals suddenly awaken to the danger Europe faces and do things like commit to spend 2% of GDP on defense in the case of German Chancellor Schultz. So the EU itself, the character of the EU is actually changing in real time and increasing the salience of the defense component in addition to the trade component. So I suspect that a kind of neutrality pledge, if this is where we end up on the part of the Ukrainian government, yes, it will have to address both NATO and the EU in a comprehensive way. But with respect to just the trade parts, my sense is that there might be more flexibility on the part of Russia. Doctors, teachers and students are picking up arms in Ukraine, training and preparing, not just for a Russian invasion, but the insurgency that could follow. 
Jen Psaki responding that Putin's fears were disingenuous. When the fox is screaming from the top of the hen house that he's scared of the chickens, which is essentially what they're doing, that fear isn't reported as a statement of fact. We would not characterize what we're seeing as de-escalatory. And for now, there is no end in sight. No sense of when or how this ends. I wanted to dig into, Stephen, let's zoom back out a little bit from the trade policy and potential solutions. You said that you fear that any type of resolution is either going to be death, despair, and destruction for the Ukrainian people on massive levels or a Russian victory. And I wanted to dig in. You've also been against supporting any type of robust funding of an Ukrainian insurgency from namely the United States. And We've had on experts from Carnegie, CSIS, and they've all said that any type of robust insurgency will require supply lines from the U.S. and EU and NATO. You know, the gasoline, the oil lubricants, the weapons, the food, the medical supplies to really make it painful for Russia. So why do you not support any type of or a robust type of funding of an insurgency? No, I don't think I've uh, opposed support for a possible potential Ukrainian insurgency. I think what I've said in any way, my position is that it's premature to be expressing support. First and foremost, the Ukrainian government stands. It's not an insurgency. It is mounting a defense of Ukraine. And I hope it has every success in doing so. So it's almost talking down Ukraine's chances to be talking about a future possible insurgency. But I do think it is premature. Some people seem to be really enthusiastic about an insurgency, and they're kind of fantasizing about it. And even prior to Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, we're talking about you know turning Ukraine into Putin's Afghanistan and just bleeding Russia endlessly into the future with blood that is, in fact, Ukrainian blood, even if there are supplies from the West. And I think that is a kind of fantasy about turning Ukraine into this great power playground. With what benefit, I'm not exactly sure, uh, except for weakening Russia to some degree. And so I think this discussion is quite premature. And keep in mind that, you know, we may get to a point where the legitimate government of Ukraine, (laughs) rather than wanting to continue to fight or to have an insurgency, wants to find an off-ramp to the conflict and hopefully would be able to achieve what it seeks with Russia and uh, with support from the West. And, you know, do we support an insurgency that would then take on the Ukrainian government of Zelensky? I would think not. But I do actually worry that some people, you know, they're Main goal is to just bleed Russians. So I think that's inappropriate. And I think any decision to arm an insurgency requires us first to actually have the concrete situation at hand so that we can assess who would we be arming, what would the strategic aim be, and what would some of the costs and risks be in addition to the benefits. And I don't see a way to answer any of those questions right now. So it's not a no 
to assisting a potential insurgency. Right now, it's a, this is a premature discussion. I would argue that I think an insurgency is very difficult to obviously fund, especially with robust support. You have to pick out the actors very carefully and know the endpoint. But I guess I want to ask you this question. Isn't it enough to support the aim of bleeding out Russia as much as possible to fund any type of insurgency? And specifically, I worry that if, for example, the U.S. were to push the Zelensky regime, tell them we're not going to fund an insurgency, and then push the regime to accept what Putin wants, which is basically to overthrow the government, to take the large swaths of land in Crimea and the other regions that we're talking about, after creating all of this death and destruction throughout the country, bombing all of these civilians... That isn't there a concern that by receding and letting Russia overthrow a government and just do an imperialistic territory grab, that other countries who might want to pursue a nuclear weapon but are watching on keenly might say, you know what, if we can just withstand sanctions for a little bit, we can go get that nuclear weapon. It's full deterrence against anything the U.S. And West will do do to us. We can go and we can make land grabs. We can go dictate mutual defense pacts. We can go overthrow our neighboring governments as long as we have this nuclear weapon, withstand the pain for five or 10 years. And then you know what? They'll start to roll back these sanctions. Isn't that a concern? Well, this incentive to have nuclear weapons has always existed. Governments, including that of North Korea, I think, have looked at the last several decades of events in the world and U.S. foreign policy, some of them have concluded we need nuclear weapons, at least as a guarantee of our survival. I actually think, if anything, right now, the lesson to take from the West's response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine is something like the opposite. I mean, the West has actually undertaken serious risks and costs to sanction a significant economy. And Russia may well retaliate in damaging ways, including through cyber attacks. We haven't seen it yet, but it may come. We are, you know, as President Biden noted, making our oil and gas prices go up, in part through these sanctions. It's Putin's fault morally, but We've also chosen to take those actions, and Europe is much more connected economically to Russia. So if I were another country looking at this, I wouldn't think, hey, anything goes. Um, Not many countries are in Russia's kinds of position, especially with respect to the strength of Russia's armed forces, its conventional forces. That's not something that other powers can just replicate. Now, your question had a lot of parts to it, and Just to come back to the insurgency question, Zelensky is not going to agree to regime change. Any agreement that Zelensky would make, and it's his decision to make, uh, let's be clear, he shouldn't be, you know, coerced into it by the United States. But any decision he would make would involve his government standing, and it would therefore deny one of the aims of Russia in this war, which is an what appears to be uh, a Russian intent to install a, a puppet government. So if that were to happen, then, you know, I would think that the uh, 
calls for arming an insurgency, uh, which would come at the expense of the Zelensky government, should end. Stephen, you talked about the West's response and kind of the strength of the West's response in regard to sanctions. But also we've seen this new surge of, of interest and support for enhanced European defense. And you've commented about how this presents a real opportunity to rebalance the way that the U.S. Uh, European Atlantic Alliance works. And you've commented on this too. There's this really interesting kind of paradox where the U.S. administrations keep asking the European countries to do more. But then when it appears as though the European countries are ready to kind of take the leadership on decision making or strategic autonomy, the U.S. gets a bit skittish. So we're asking them to do more. But then when they appear ready to really kind of take the reins, we get uncomfortable. And right now, it seems like we're at a crossroads here. And there's an opportunity and also a risk. So on one hand, um, the increased interest and salience of European defense and consciousness of European defense could be an opportunity for that kind of rebalancing to really happen to kind of give the keys to NATO over to some of the EU countries or European countries like Norway that aren't part of the EU, and for the U.S. to kind of pursue this rebalancing towards the Asia-Pacific. But then on the other hand, in the short term, there's obviously much more U.S. consciousness about the importance of European security, new U.S. public and media interest in European security, new commitments of, of forces to Eastern Europe, new supplying of weapons to Europe, so in a way, that could actually set back their kind of rebalancing that there's also an opportunity to pursue. So how do you kind of view this right now? Which of those two paths do you think that we're more likely to go down based on your understanding of the way that the current government are kind of looking at this situation? Well, another wonderful question. Um, so yeah, I think broadly speaking, these are two plausible outcomes. All of them involve European defense strengthening in light of the increased threat from Russia. It's a threat that's increased because we've now seen Russian intentions become more aggressive and the Kremlin's appetite for taking risks increase, not that Russian capabilities have increased. So I would say um, the more likely if I'm putting money on an outcome, more likely the United States strategic problem will get worse insofar as it will you know, continue to take the lead in European defense. It will encourage Europeans to do more in their own defense, but not at the price of displacing the United States. And therefore, the U.S. military role in Europe uh, essentially increase in terms of the costs and risks. And because of the increased risks from Russia, you know, that makes our strategic burden go up. And the China problem isn't fundamentally changing either. Most likely, I think, we see a path that uh, Bob Gates, for example, outlined in the Washington Post recently, in which the uh, U.S. pursuit of great power competition against China and Russia simultaneously intensifies. I worry a lot about that outcome, and many people, including in the Biden administration, do too, because we should have some, I think, real doubts 
about whether the United States will have the capability and the will in the medium term and the long term to be effective in defending both Europe and Asia. What I think would be a better path, and I think a reasonably realistic one, would be to seize on the European awakening and try to effectuate not an instant transition by any stretch, because it is correct for the United States to bolster the eastern flank of NATO in this crisis and for some time after the crisis. But I think we need to be really candid with Europeans about our own limits in the future. Those limits come from American politics, where Donald Trump could very well be the next president, and it's not very clear how he would act in a crisis like this or in a contingency in which Russia and NATO forces had a direct clash. Then perhaps more profoundly, I think it's unclear whether the United States can really up its defense spending to the degree that may be necessary if the United States is taking the lead in deterrence against both China and Russia. And so I think this is a good moment to have these frank conversations with Europeans who I think really are um, rethinking uh, their assumptions about European defense uh, and are actually building on steps that have been taken uh, since 2014 and 2017 as well. And it appears that the public sentiment in a lot of these European countries is all for taking that step forward, maybe following what the French have been saying for it feels like three decades now (laughs) and working towards that strategic autonomy. But Stephen, we touched on it earlier. I wanted to just really hammer at home with specifically China and what you think they're viewing of everything that's going on and specifically stuff we've already mentioned, the cohesion in the West, the strong sanctions in the West, uh, the increase in defense funding. I think I just saw today, along with Germany going over 2%, it's Denmark and Sweden as well have announced that they're going over 2%. Is this presenting a stronger U.S. global presence than maybe Beijing had previously assumed? And is this any type of united front, maybe a stronger deterrence against military action, albeit however unlikely, in Taiwan in the future? It's very difficult to say how Beijing is, is reading these events. And, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, you could see the logic going in either direction for Beijing. The more that the United States and Europe are focused on Russia, the more of the U.S. defense budget and planning and attention goes into Russia. That may be a welcome outcome as far as China is concerned. So rather than being impressed with, you know, look at the backbone of the West that has suddenly sprung up, some in Beijing, at least, I'm sure, are seeing something of an opportunity in China. So it's really hard to say. Of course, I think the interesting question is exactly how the Chinese-Russian relationship will play out and, and just how much Vladimir Putin will, will need from Chinese President Xi in order to stave off serious economic 
problems. I think that uh, Taiwan is really essentially unconnected to these events. And I think China has its own timetable, which is a very, very long one for seeking to eventually reunify with Taiwan. I don't think it's an issue that they will force unless they feel that they are forced to do so. But there are some worrying signs here. I mean, if the United States were to get into a shooting war with Russia in Ukraine, I'd be concerned about the signals that that would send to Beijing. I'm not saying it would fundamentally overturn the calculus of the Chinese government, but I'd be concerned about those signals. I mean, on the one hand, U.S. capabilities in the short term would be focused on a very scary war with Russia. And on a broader level, you know, the United States had made pretty clear, as we've talked about over decades, that it was not going to, in fact, admit Ukraine into NATO and make a guarantee to come to the defense of Ukraine. And it was quite clear that Russian elites, as well as Vladimir Putin, but Russian elites more broadly, viewed the alignment of Ukraine as a red line for Russia. So for the United States to exceed that red line and exceed what it said it was going to do, you know, I think it would at least raise a question in Beijing about whether the United States truly is still committed to the one China policy and to preserving ambiguity as to whether it would come to the defense of Taiwan. So you put those factors together and again, not predicting anything, but contrary to this conventional wisdom that, you know, somehow if the West lets Russia achieve its aims in Ukraine, you know, that will embolden China to move on Taiwan. I think the reverse has actually gotten more logic to it. If the United States and the West were to get into an, an all-out conflict with Russia, I would actually be more worried about stability across the Taiwan Strait. So I just want to ask one more question. So in the American and English-speaking foreign policy landscape, we've got these kind of familiar camps of thinkers. You know, we've got the realists and the restrainers and the liberal internationalists and the neocons and the isolationists. And these are always a bit roughly drawn. But at times of great conflict, at times of great crisis, at times of great change, sometimes they're redrawn and sometimes things move in a surprising way and people voice opinions and perspectives that are surprising. So in the middle of this crisis, what has surprised you about the way that certain thinkers have reacted? Has anyone or any of these kind of camps or, or groups of thinkers reacted or responded in a way that's really surprised you and you think changes a little bit of how we understand the way Americans think about foreign policy? As of now, to me, the biggest surprise probably doesn't have anything to do with those camps that you described. It's more that some people seem to be not taking seriously the eminently foreseeable consequences of certain courses of action. So, you know, advocating for a no-fly zone, which I don't think is going to happen, the Biden administration certainly doesn't want to do it. Are you really sure you want to have a great power war 
with a nuclear peer to the United States. Nobody really thought that the stakes were there for the American people prior to the invasion, an invasion that was foreseen. And so I guess I'm surprised by the extent to which maybe more in media commentary, but not limited there than in policymaking circles, many people are viewing this war primarily through the lens of humanitarian intervention. You know, they're seeing this war as kind of another episode in this trajectory from the 1990s with the wars in Yugoslavia, the former Yugoslavia, through to various Middle East interventions, Libya, Syria, etc. And I understand where that comes from, but I almost pine for the sobriety of the Cold War. Americans understood the grave stakes, for example, when there were uprisings in Warsaw Pact countries, Hungary, 1956, Czechoslovakia, 1968. So I've been kind of concerned by how much this temptation to get into an all-out war with Russia, how much it exists, even if I still think the probability is quite low. Now, of course, I completely understand, and I'm part of the wave of sympathy and support for the Ukrainian people and mounting a resistance that nobody saw coming. And frankly, the anger at Russia um, is hard to imagine being disappointed with Vladimir Putin. But I think I was kind of disappointed with Vladimir Putin for, for taking this kind of just <laughs> awful, <laughs> awful. That <action>. is hard. <laughs> I know. I didn't think it was possible. And he showed me that it was. So I'm, I'm totally getting the emotions of the moment, but I am a little bit concerned that we've lost sight of the stakes that are truly at play. So I did want to just follow up there, Stephen. I think we agree with you that the people that you see on the media circles and Adam Kinzinger, who doesn't really have a political party advocating for no-fly zones, maybe it's just in those type of circles and it's super dangerous. That's World War III, right? But I have to ask you your opinion on the other side. Because you have similarly unserious people like Rep. Omar and a lot of the progressives who are advocating against any sectoral sanctions against Russia because they're concerned about the impact on the Russian people, which, according to our guests, largely support the war. She was actually one of two Democrats with Cori Bush to vote against sanctioning Russian oil because of the impact it would have on Russia. So should we be equally concerned that some people appear in the Democratic Party just willing to let Russia have Ukraine without any serious sanctions or actions because it's against their core ideology and they are in policymaking circles? Interesting. And we should just add to the point that um, I believe it's Joe Manchin who also uh, expressed support for a no-fly zone, so a different part of the Democratic Party. So, you know. Uh, we've got Republicans, Democrats, uh, progressives, conservatives saying all kinds of things. I am not aware exactly of what Ilhan Omar's position is, so I, I can't comment on that. My impression, though, from, from speaking with some members of Congress and their staff is that, in fact, there is widespread support among progressives for 
serious sanctions on Russia. We have imposed incredibly serious, severe sanctions on Russia in the first week of the conflict, regardless of what one's stance is then on the oil and gas sanctions that were recently imposed. That's actually small beans compared to blocking transactions for the Russian central bank and for major Russian financial institutions. Those are the big ones. And I'm not seeing a whole lot of disagreement about that in Congress. In January, they released, as a progressive caucus, Congresswoman Jayapal released a letter actually unequivocally stating that they're against sectoral sanctions on Russia, and then Putin invaded. Was the premise that, um, again, I haven't seen that letter, so was the premise that if Russia fully invades Ukraine, then they're against any sanctions on sectors of the Russian economy? What the letter said, it was like a roadmap for 21st century American foreign policy. And it was saying, from this point forward, you know, these are the tools that we should consider using. And these are the tools that we should rule out using in any and all cases. A couple of the things that they said that the U.S. should not participate in from this point forward were um, lethal aid and sectoral-based sanctions. This document was released in January. And the IC had been doing briefings with these members as early as November telling them that the invasion was probably coming. So it was deliberately released with this roadmap for 21st century foreign policy in the context of those briefings and the, you know, the news cycle as it was in January. Well, look, I, I actually have to wonder how different that position was at that time from what the Biden administration was planning itself. These sanctions have become much bigger much more severe than I think the administration was planning. I mean, the, the line coming into the invasion was that sanctions would not target or severely affect ordinary Russians, millions of people. Instead, they would go after Vladimir Putin is in her circle, and I'm not quite sure where oligarchs stood on that. So the sanctions have expanded. And I will say, I think it's really hard to understand what exactly the strategy is and what we're trying to achieve. Should Russia pay a, a cost? Yes, absolutely, right? But sanctions aren't a binary. There's a question about the extent of the sanctions and, again, what the strategy is, whether we're trying to use them as leverage to achieve a better outcome, whether we're simply trying to turn Russia into a large Iran or North Korea, not a perfect analogy because Russia's too big to be those things, but you get my drift. And that comes with risk too. So I worry about the extent of the sanctions, to be honest with you. I don't know exactly what the right amount was, and I think I favored serious costs going on Russia. I think killing Nord Stream 2, for example, was, was absolutely right. But where the line is, this is a legitimate question, and I think we, we have to continue to think about um, where to where to go from here in the weeks and months ahead. That's all we have for you today. Again, huge thanks to Stephen Wertheim, to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, to our guests for their questions, and to you for being here. Like all of our episodes, this is an edited version of a much longer conversation that was taped with live audience questions. For information on how to join us, past episodes, or to sign up for our very illustrious email newsletter, which will deliver our best of to your inbox twice per month, please visit our website, pm101.live. 
This has been Politics Media 101, produced in partnership with Clubhouse. I'm Jeff Browning. On behalf of Justin Higgins, our co-founder and our team, thank you very much for being here. We hope to see you and hear from you soon.